Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I hope you're having a great day. It is now time for episode number 45, and it's a great one. We have a special guest. It's the secret weapon. You've heard my co-host, Dr. Kenneth Brown, talk about her in the past as the secret weapon. She's the one who does so much of the research and the discovery and, and passes on just tons and tons of great, great information. Angie Cook. Angie Cook joins the show today. She's a registered nurse. She has her master's in nutrition, and she's got experience dealing with really some of the the worst predicaments of gut health possible. I mean, she even had her colon removed, and she's here today to talk about that journey, that story, and hopefully give you and your family enough information to where you don't have to go down the same path that, uh, that she did. So if you have concerns about dysautonomia or POTS, or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There's there's just a lot of different applications here. Vagal nerve uh, uh, issues. She's got some great information here on on really what could could change your life, make it better. So, without further ado, let's talk about our sponsors. The whole reason that we get to do this show every single week. Autron Teal, made and created by my co-host Dr. Kenneth Brown is chock full of all natural polyphenols. That's right. Get your own polyphenol source. If it doesn't matter who you are, you can be an active athlete, you can be somebody who's just concerned about gut health. You can just be simply concerned about maintaining your already great health. You need polyphenols and you need them every day. Go to lovemytummy.com forward slash KBMD and pick up your own Autron Teal today. That's lovemytummy.com Get your own Ultron Teal today. Get your daily polyphenols. And of course, Unrefined Bakery, unrefinedbakery.com. If you just like great food and you want to save just a little bit of money, use code GUTCHECK on your first purchase and save 20% off of no matter what you purchase from them. And they can deliver. They can deliver to you. Unrefinedbakery.com. Great food. No matter what kind of diet you're having to stick to, whether it's paleo, keto, They've got breads. They've got breads for you. They've got desserts for you. If you if you thought you had to write those things off, they trust me. And and don't don't cheat yourself. Get a bag of the mix. The uh, the nickname of the mix is crack because it's it's really really hard to put down. Unrefinedbakery.com. Use code gutcheck on your very first uh, purchase there and save twenty percent. Last but not least, of course, you need not only your daily polyphenols. But to keep down and stave off inflammation using KBMD CBD and, of course, the Broccoli, Broccoli Pro, only available from physicians. And it just so happens that, uh, you know, Ken Brown here is a physician himself. So you can go to KBMDHealth.com, use code GCP, save 20% off of any order. That's KBMDHealth.com. Get all of those things. You can get the signature package or the biohackers package. Save some money. Improve your health, kbmdhealth.com. Okay, let's waste no more time, and you'll hear me actually uh, kind of flub the intro for uh, for Angie. She comes on, but just tune in. You're going to love it. It's a great show. Angie Cook, ladies and gentlemen, here for episode number 45. All right, everyone, it is now episode number 45. Hello, KBMD Health family and GCP Gut Check Project fans. I'm Eric here with my co-host, Dr. Kenneth Brown. We've got an incredible show today, and 
Well, this guy is always referred to a special secret weapon, and I'm going to let him unveil it here in just a moment. But uh, I'm going to go ahead before he talks about why this uh, secret weapon is a secret weapon. Let's uh, just talk here in just a moment. Angie Cook is a registered nurse. She has some issues such as dysautonomia, miles, Ehlers-Danlos, colonic inertia, severe constipation, all of these different things that she's got experience with that she could actually share a personal story. So, Ken, what brought us here? All right. So this is what, uh, all right. So this episode is very dear to my heart and uh, people that don't experience this, you're going to go, oh, that's kind of an odd topic, but I'm telling you, you want to listen to this because we know that there's a connection between digestive health, gut inflammation, and the possibility of developing other symptoms, other issues like dysautonomia. And before you just turn it off, you're like, what's that? And like, whoa, that's what Angie's going to tell us about today. So Angie, I've always referred to her as my secret weapon on the podcast. You can go back to almost one of the first episodes that we've ever done. We're in episode 45. 45. And first of all, Angie, thank you so much for your incredible diligence to researching and backing everything by science. So I get emails from all over the world and people say, hey, can you help me with this? And I will email you and say, is there any chance that you could find this article? And then you find me 50 articles related to that. And we sift through them. So one of the most impressive things is that you're a patient of mine that has gone from having some symptoms to learning so much about it that you've actually gotten your master's in nutrition and you realize that part of this process is that you and I are now a team and I've gotten to the point where I'm relying on you for information. And this is my expose of you saying, look, you know so much more than me about this. We need to get this out to the public. And this is what I want to do. Um, I did uh, Chris Kresser's podcast a couple months ago and immediately him and I ran to the same conclusion. It's not about the bacteria. It's not about this. It's about the motility. What do we do about that? What is it? And so what we're going to talk about today is the motility about everything. And your history is incredible because if you're somebody who's ever felt frustrated by the lack of attention that maybe you've gotten in the medical community, if you're somebody who's felt frustrated that you're being blown off, anything like that, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go from Angie's story about what she has gone through. And then we're going to geek out on a level that I am so impressed by. So if you're Siobhan Sarna and you're the SIBO Summit person, you're going to want to listen to this one. If you're Chris Kresser, I got an email from Ben Greenfield just today, yesterday, or yesterday, yeah. today asking about what um, different help with some SIBO people. I feel like and what I feel like, because this hasn't been done yet, is because you sent me 30 pages of notes <laughs> that I know that you figured this out. This is like the first time ever these puzzle pieces have been put together. And I'm so excited. So I want to say, first of all, I'm honored to be your doctor. Secondly, I'm disappointed I didn't figure it out. And I have not figured it out yet. Thirdly, I'm super proud of your resilience of your drive and of your determination 
to not only help yourself, but ultimately share it with other people. So I'm thrilled about this podcast. We have Angie Cook on the podcast, RN, uh, nutrition, master's in nutrition, and just beginning her road to helping lots of people. I know this, and I know that you're going to end up writing a book, and I know that you're going to be the motility expert, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So mm -hmm. welcome. Thank you. No pressure there. <laughs> I just want to say that was the uh, the most detailed introduction we've ever done for anybody no, on the show. Uh, it really is. Room and hide under the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in to episode forty six when we talk about the stuff that we just did in the introduction. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I, in all sincerity, it's that important to me, and it's that important that you help me, you teach me, so that I can help other people. That's why we're doing this. Definitely. Thank you. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw it back at Eric and let him kind of lead. And I'm just going to try and pop in occasionally because I'm a huge super fan of you. So I'm going to try not to interrupt every 30 seconds. Not a problem. Not a problem. So Angie, whenever we are dealing with issues of motility, not everyone necessarily understands what the problem is. So when you began to experience problems and not really even knowing that it was a motility issue, what did you first experience? And then who did you go to to try to find out answers? And then yeah, I'll let you take it from there. Right. So um, to share a little bit about my story, um, my problem started about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was at that time, I was actually pretty healthy. I didn't have any kind of diagnoses. I didn't have any medications. I didn't see a doctor on a regular basis for any kind of ongoing reasons. And um, over a very short period of time, I had sort of what I described as the perfect storm of things happening. And they sort of seemed a little bit unrelated. But the first thing that happened was I started having abdominal pain. And I did have a little bit of trouble with the bowel movements. But my main issue was I just started having really severe pain. So I started by seeing my gynecologist. And I went to him and they found a very large ovarian cyst. So I had surgery right away to get take that taken care of, but I still had problems. I still had pain. So then he sent me to another doctor who was a surgeon and they thought maybe I had appendicitis. So I ended up, I did have a problem with my appendix and they removed it. But after that surgery, which was just 30 days after the first, so I had two surgeries within 30 days. Um, both my gynecologist and my surgeon said, well, we think you're just constipated. And I was just shocked. I was like, what do you mean I'm constipated? I've never had a problem with bowel movements. I've never taken any kind of medication. It's never been anything that has been an issue for me. It's always been a non-issue. Right. And even though I'd been having a little bit of trouble, I didn't really consider it constipation. And so I found out very quickly that I did have constipation and that the pain was relieved when I took medication. Um, but the problem was that I needed a lot of medication. It wasn't just like a normal laxative over the counter. I needed very high doses and it took my body a very long time to do anything once I took the medication. So they told me to go find a gastroenterologist. And that's when I came to you, Dr. Brown. Um, and all of this happened within about six or eight weeks from where I thought I was fine to where I was severely incapacitated. 
So in that, at that point, when you, when you end up going to obviously see Ken and you go to his clinic, I've gotten to know a little bit more about your story just simply because not only do you uh, experience this issue and do a lot of research on it, you do tons of research for, for both of us on, on various topics. So we, we've exchanged quite a bit. I've seen you though, as you've moved through and, and hit roadblocks and challenges. So this isn't just as if you went to Ken's office and then, oh, you've got constipation. Well, I'm a GI. This must be pretty easy to fix. In fact, you probably encountered a much different scenario. What, what was that? Right, like? right. So when I first start, started seeing Dr. Brown, we did all kinds of tests. And, you know, I mean, Dr. Brown, you've been amazing um, because a lot of patients with motility issues, when... Well, well, let me back up. So what we ended up finding out was that I was diagnosed with colonic inertia. So basically that is a diagnosis that is very similar to constipation, but it's the most severe type of constipation you can imagine. So basically what happens is your colon just becomes paralyzed and nothing moves and it causes severe pain, severe bloating, can cause nausea and vomiting, and it can be even a really um, dangerous issue because if you can't move anything, you're at risk for obstructions and other complications and things like that. So early on, um, I knew that my problem was really severe. I started seeing Dr. Brown. We went through all the usual tests and then I got this diagnosis. Um, what's interesting though, is that I found later on that, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I had some things going on with my neck. So about a year or two after I was diagnosed, um, we realized my neck problems had progressed. I actually had several spinal cord, um, I had several discs in my spinal cord that were herniated, but I had one that was actually herniated and it was pressed into my spinal cord. Oh. So it was causing severe myelopathy. So I really think that that probably triggered some of my problem. It contributed a lot to, to trigger this colonic inertia, you know, starting. So, so Angie, let me just, uh, just stop right there. When you say it yes. caused myelopathy, which is different yes. than when, if somebody's listening, they're like, well, I had a bulging disc. I didn't have constipation. Yeah. Just explain briefly what you mean by that. So I actually had three discs that were a problem. Um, my C4, 5 disc, the 5, 6, and the 6, 7. So the way I found out about it was I had a lot of left upper extremity pain, numbness. It was just, I felt like maybe I had torn my rotator cuff, but I was also having all these GI issues. And I even thought maybe I had MS because I couldn't um, feel my legs very well. So what happens is normally when a disc herniates, it herniates to one side or the other, and that's what causes radiculopathy. And you can have that in your upper extremities or your lower extremities. And that's when you get that pain and the numbness and the tingling and all that. But my disc at the, the top disc, the C4-5 disc actually herniated back instead of to the side. So it was pressed halfway through the spinal cord. And when I ended up having surgery, the surgeon said it was very bad that anything like a, a simple slip or fall that just could have fallen or could have been pushed all the way through the cord. There would have been no forgiveness. I could have been paralyzed. And he said that it had been pressed into the spinal cord for so long and so hard that when he removed the disc, it actually, there was a hole in the spinal cord. It started gushing spinal fluid everywhere. Oof. So it was more than just like a simple disc that it's herniated to the side causing problems. That was the problem with the two discs below. And that's kind of what alerted me. Something's going on. I need to see a doctor. But the main problem was the disc that was pressed into the spinal cord. 
And so you feel like this was probably a catalyst that ended up resulting in. Right. And once this happened, I could look back and see that there were several warning signs. I didn't have an injury or anything like that. Uh Probably what happened is I had um, very severe osteophytes, which are bone spurs, Mm -hmm. and they started pushing the discs out of alignment. And I was having headaches. I was having migraines. I had started noticing that I couldn't really feel things like if I was shaving my legs and I cut myself, I couldn't feel it. I didn't know it until I saw myself bleeding. But by the time that I realized that it was a problem and I was having all the other symptoms, it had progressed to the point I was actually having trouble walking um, and I couldn't feel anything below my waist. And I was actually having fecal incontinence at night in my sleep. So it was very severe. Man, I am so sorry that you had to go through really any of it. Yeah, so I'm sure that that probably contributed to the colonic inertia, but really, um, at the time that this happened, I didn't know much about any of this. I was a nurse. I'd been a nurse for a long time. I'd never heard of it. Um, I, when I got the diagnosis, I started going on Google to try to read, and I just got very frustrated and hopeless. I felt depressed because there really wasn't a lot of information out there, and every time I asked someone, why did this happen, you know, no one could really explain it. They just kind of said, well, we know motility issues happen. We just don't always understand why. So it was, it was very hard. But since then, I um, have joined several discussion groups and support groups online and met a lot of people. And when I read stories, one thing that I do see is that generally people with motility issues have one of two scenarios. They either have always had motility issues that just progress to the point where now they're severe or they are like me where several things happened and it could be different things, not necessarily the same things that happened to me, but several things happened with their health and somehow those issues are issues that we know can create intestinal inflammation or increase permeability and that that probably caused the the dysmotility. So with this, basically a physical manifestation is what we're talking about. And it's very mechanical. We have a disc herniation. And then you're saying that it's to your best estimation that ended up leading to the GI issues. And we haven't talked about it yet, but I, I bet you that you're probably going to talk a little bit about maybe food selections and different things like that was a, was a road that you went down to see if you could correct constipation. It's a very natural thing for people to do. Do you feel like that you were able to get anywhere and maybe why you weren't? And uh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So the one thing about colonic inertia is that it isn't the same as constipation. A lot of times if people have constipation, you can have them maybe increase their fiber in their diet or, you know, people have SIBO, they'll, they'll try all kinds of different diets, but colonic inertia doesn't really respond to any of that. In fact, if you try to increase your fiber, it severely exacerbates the pain and, and the problems. I mean, even to this day, I can't eat as much fiber as I would like. I have to be very careful, even if I'm making a smoothie or juicing something where it's still liquid, but it has a lot of fiber, mm-hmm. that's going to mess me up. And that's very common. People with colonic inertia or gastroparesis, which I also have developed, um, will will say the same thing. So let me interrupt you right there because of the path that we were going down when I was doing my research on SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or bacteria growing where it shouldn't be. And that was a recurring theme between you and I. I'm like, why are you not responding to anything? Yeah. 
this is like, I'm crushing it with my other patients. They think I'm amazing. And you're like, <laughs> uh, nothing. And that's where we kept going. And so this led to you not giving up, me not giving up and then saying, okay, what else is going on? So when we talk about colonic inertia, you're saying the word over and over, but what do you really mean by that? So again, it's like a very severe form of constipation. It basically means that your colon is paralyzed. It's not moving. So what happens is when you eat, your food goes through your stomach and your small intestine so you can digest and absorb it. But when it gets to the colon, it stops moving. So you have this buildup of waste. And if, if you can't do something to get that to move, then you're going to end up with an obstruction or something like that. And that's very common with patients like this. They get in very dire situations. I can say one of the best things that you told me in the very beginning, the best advice I received was to always take what I needed to take to make sure that I was going every day. And I took that advice to heart. And that was sort of my, um, you know, my guiding principle that I used. And I learned very quickly what was normal output. And if anything changed, then I knew I needed to change. I needed to stop eating, go on a liquid diet, increase my medications. I needed to do something right away to get that corrected. And unfortunately, I see a lot of uh, patients that, you know, and of course this isn't to their fault because this is a very, very hard problem to manage, but it is not uncommon for patients to go a week, two weeks, three weeks, oh, a month, and they have so not long. had a bowel movement. We talked about this, that my wife, Loida, is, uh, she's on sabbatical now for it's 16 years, but it's, uh, she's a rehab doctor. And so they deal with spinal cord injuries. Mm -hmm. One of the yeah. first things that they address when somebody has a spinal cord injury which essentially is what you're describing. You had a spinal cord injury because it herniated into the disc, which is you need to stay and you need to um, essentially make sure that your patients have bowel movements because the nerves are not telling it. So colonic right. inertia is essentially a nerve issue where you're not having the peristalsis. So exactly. In fact, I actually worked in a rehab when I was in nursing school. And I worked on the spinal cord injury floor. So I helped patients every night with their bowel programs. I was very familiar with that. And patients who do have spinal cord injuries, they have a bowel program where they will have some sort of regimen that they follow. It's usually either every night or every other night, but it's all about doing some kind of intervention to make things move so that that's a regular um, you know, just a regular regimen they follow. And basically I had to do the same thing. I had to go on a lot of different medications, very high doses. And for me, because I worked during the day, I made the decision that I came home from work, I took all my medications, and then I was in and out of the bathroom all night long and sometimes, you know, all evening as well as all night long. I did sleep a lot. And I did that for about seven years. And then unfortunately, when Gosh. people have colonic inertia, it's so severe that when you fail all the medications, um, the only option is to remove the colon. And that's what ended up happening to me is that even though I was trying very hard to manage it, I got to the point where the medications were not as effective. I was having a lot of side effects. I was having a lot of electrolyte issues with low potassium, which is um, pretty serious if that continues. And so about a year ago, I ended up, I did have my colon removed. So I just want to clarify this for anybody who 
is dealing with even constipation, just simple constipation, and they don't want to talk to their friends about it. They don't want to do anything. You mentioned a couple things. We've we've packaged a lot right in there. One of those is support groups that you do yes. online forums and things like that. But it shows that how important it is that digestion is not just the absorption of calories. It's also the elimination of waste, which is a necessary process. So when I talk to my patients, it's like, look, breathing out CO2, you know, if you want to think that, that pooping is embarrassing or whatever, guess what happens when you can't? You can actually die from it. And yeah. what, what we were dealing with during that period was, oh, my gosh, this is crazy we're throwing everything in the kitchen sink and your colon is not working. So if anybody's listening to it and they're maybe blown off by their doctor and such, this is, it's a very real thing, which is why I was so excited to have you on and tell your story. It's real. It's really hard and you feel very alone. It's not socially acceptable to talk about your bowel habits. It's always considered taboo and, you know, too much information kind of thing. And so no one can really understand this unless you've actually been in that desperate situation. So you feel very isolated and alone and affects your quality of life in every way imaginable. Um, I know that for me personally, my social life was greatly affected. You know, anytime that I wanted to do anything like meet a friend for lunch or, you know, go out to dinner, I actually would plan ahead. I would fast for, you know, two or three meals. So then I could go to a restaurant with someone and actually eat a meal and then come home and then fast again. So, I mean, the impact on your quality of life, you just, you can't describe it. It's very isolating. You find yourself just basically planning life around regular life. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds, uh, that sounds not ideal. So not to fast forward, but what I feel like that you've really done an excellent job at summarizing is that the traditional way for you to try to find relief for constipation, which would be increasing fiber, making certain that you've had enough fluids and, and the normal things that we would tell most people if they're having a constipation issue, you just choose better food. Essentially it obviously wasn't working for you. And so we're now going into a a situation where you talked about basically it's a, it's a paralyzed um, movement or lack of movement of a food bolus, especially by the time it it enters uh, into the colon. So talk a little bit about that. Once you discovered that your situation wasn't going to have an easy remedy and, and it really is more or less going to be affected by a mechanical structure, nerves, it really changes probably the landscape on what you, Angie, were going to do for yourself to figure out, okay, the ball game's different. I'm not just not eating fiber. I'm not just not selecting the best foods. My body essentially is not responding the right way when there is something in the colon. So what, what did that do for you when you kind of found out or discovered? Well, definitely when I started realizing that this was my new baseline, that, you know, I wasn't going to ever go back to the way things were, that at some point I was going to have to manage this in some way for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Then that's when I really started getting interested in gut health and doing the research. I became a complete nerd, started um, <laughs> spending a lot of my free time, you know, reading journal articles and trying to learn to educate myself. I had heard that, you know, all gut all health begins in the gut. And I wanted to understand more what did that mean specifically. And I knew that this was something I was going to have to manage. So 
I knew there wasn't a lot of great answers and I just figured that there was, it, it, I just figured that I needed to understand it as much as I could myself to help myself because nobody else had that much motivation. So it really kind of made me turn into this nerd. And then of course I got interested in nutrition and that's why I went to get my master's, but it was all because I knew that this was going to be my baseline that I had to, to learn somehow to live with it. Okay. And then knowing that you had to find this new place to live in, what, what did you find that the deficits were? Now, you know, it's not fiber lack and, and, and you've prepared yourself on how do I support myself and others like me with nutrition kind of walk us through what you began to discover on like what the issue actually was where it wasn't, right. it wasn't just a lack of, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. Let me just clarify this. Cause you mentioned something in passing. You had your colon taken out. Like yes. I eventually had my colectomy. So, I mean, that's pretty big deal. I mean, like, like we probably end the podcast now because then you were cured, right? No, no. Uh oh. So, yeah. So, um, you know, even that, that was my first symptom somewhere along the way, I did start developing other problems. Um, I don't have all the problems that you listed at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Here. I may have misspoken there, but yeah, that's all right. I was trying to tie yeah, them together, but, but you because okay. of your research, what I really want is anybody who has SIBO or POTS or Ehlers-Danlos, Ehlers-Danlos or right. mast cell activation syndrome or MALS. And if you're like, I don't know what any of those are, don't worry. If you don't know, consider yourself lucky because if you do know, you know you're suffering. And right. so we're going to eventually get to the science of where everything you did, I believe, has found this puzzle piece to get there. But I just want everyone to know that you, you had the surgery, but you weren't completely fixed. Yeah, no, I'm not. So at some point during the, the years, I did start developing symptoms of gastroparesis, which is basically the same thing that I was describing with the colon, but it's with the stomach. So your stomach becomes kind of paralyzed where anytime you eat food or you drink anything, it just stays in your stomach for much longer than it needs to. And it doesn't move and it causes a lot of pain. It can cause nausea, it can cause vomiting. Um, so I developed that and actually for the last several years, um, the problem with that is it's aggravated by position. So it has prevented me from eating later in the day. Um, I usually try to eat everything I'm going to eat by the middle of the afternoon. If I eat like a dinner, then I'm taking a chance that when I go to bed at night, I may wake up you know, two, three, four hours later in pain or even vomiting. So like the last several years, I've actually kept a bowl next to the bed because I'll wake up and I'll already be starting to vomit. So I developed gastroparesis. I also developed several symptoms of dysautonomia, um, which have come and gone throughout the, the years. Um, it's not something I deal with every day, but I'll have flare-ups where I'll have a lot of symptoms and then in a little while, it'll kind of get better and then it'll kind of come back again. So I have dealt with quite a bit of that. And when I had my colon, I sort of just lumped it all together that, okay, my colon doesn't work. So I know I have all these other problems, but it's all just kind of related. And then when I had my colon out, obviously that part got better because now I don't have a colon. I don't have to take as much medication. I'm not, you know, having to do the things that I did before but I still have the gastroparesis. I still have some overall slow motility in my stomach and my small bowel. And I've had issues with dysautonomia off and on this year. Mm. Um, I've learned more about dysautonomia and, and really recognized that there are some symptoms I've had that I never recognized before. Can you define so, dysautonomia? 
just tell yeah, so this what autonomia, um, basically your autonomic nervous system does everything in your body that you don't have to think about. So it controls like breathing, heart rate, your digestion. Actually, gastroparesis is considered a symptom of dysautonomia. But when you have that, one of the things that can happen is I've had POTS type symptoms. So the definition of POTS is basically postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which all that really means is that when you stand up, your heart rate goes way high. But it's really more complicated than that. What happens and, and what it's like for me is I can be sitting here where I'm at right now working, doing my job, and I, I have a little pulse ox. So I'll check my, my heart rate. It'll be in the 60s. And when I'm having a flare-up, I can get up and I can walk to another room in my house, get a drink of water, come back, and I will have felt like I had just ran a marathon. When I check my heart rate now, it's gone from 60 to like 130, 140. And you just feel like you're swimming underwater and it'll stay high for maybe 30, 45 minutes. Um, another symptom is heat intolerance, which um, I've also had for several years, but at several episodes this year where it's not just been that I'm uncomfortable when it's hot, but my temperature actually will raise, it'll go higher several degrees. And then I can't, my body can't cool itself off. So, um, Another problem that goes along with that is people with dysautonomia will lose the ability to sweat. So when I realized that, I'm thinking back, I don't remember the last time I sweat. So that kind of goes with the heat intolerance. When you get hot, your body can't cool itself off. And, you know, my face will get red and my temperature will go up, but my body can't cool itself back down to a normal temperature. Um, things like dry eyes, dry mouth, dry skin, I have all of those almost every day. And those are all because the autonomic nervous system controls all your glands and the way that it functions. And when you have dysautonomia, you can have problems with that. Is there any people with dysautonomia that have worse symptoms that are life-threatening? Oh, absolutely. You can progress. It can be very severe because you can't regulate your heart rate um, or your breathing. So there are people who have it much worse than I do. Um, the other part of POTS is that there are people who struggle with dehydration on a daily basis and require IV hydration every single day. Um, along with that, you can also have symptoms. Just taking a shower can be overwhelming to your system and take a long time to recover from. So yes, it can progress to where it's life-threatening. So just by description and, and a little bit more technical, the symptoms that, uh, that Angie's describing, that you're describing, Angie, is just, it, it allows me to think of on the autonomic nervous system, we're really talking about one side that's really becoming deficient. That would be the parasympathetic side of, the, autonom yeah, of, the, of the autonomic nervous system. So, mm -hmm. of course, we've got fight or flight, and then we have rest and digest. We really depend so much on rest and digest, really more for better function throughout the rest of the day. And when that is not being, uh, I guess, in tuned, if you will, for the better part of the day, we can suffer like this. And our glands don't work, and we don't we don't sweat when necessary, and our heart rate does raise. So, um, yeah, it, it it unfortunately it does seem like it all comes back to one side, and it and from all of the notes that you sent over, it seems like that's what you spent a lot of time drawing the parallels and tying it back to, to one specific source. Do you want right. to kind of go down that road? Sure. So 
Um, like I said, I had my colon removed about a year ago. And then when that, when I had that done and then I started realizing I still had problems, that's when I started thinking, okay, these problems are continuing. I need to start figuring them out. So I started researching different areas and I'm going to kind of say it's almost like an onion. So like when you start peeling back one layer, then there's another layer and it just kind of keeps going. But um, the first thing I started looking at was small intestine dysmotility. And I actually found several studies where the researchers used the model of a postoperative ileus to study what small intestine dysmotility is all about. So when you have surgeries, particularly an abdominal surgery, the intestines are manipulated. And if you're having intestine surgery, then of course they're cut. And your body perceives all of that as an injury and it creates inflammation. Sure. So what I learned was that in all these different studies I looked at, that inflammation always causes pro-inflammatory cytokines to be released, which you want your body to do that whenever there's inflammation. But specifically what I found is that even though there was a number of different cytokines that were released that were creating inflammation, that all of them seemed to downregulate acetylcholine, which when you're talking about the parasympathetic nervous system, that of course is controlled by the vagus nerve and you need acetylcholine for the parasympathetic nervous system to function. Right. And so as a result of all those cytokines downregulating acetylcholine, then the person developed an ileus, which is basically your small intestine is going to freeze up, it's not going to move, and you have dysmotility. But then in all the studies I read, what I found is that the researchers were looking for a way to, to reverse that. And so they were using different medications, and all of the medications they used reversed the ileus. And even though I found like three or four different studies and the medications were all different, the common thread was that all of the medications had a mechanism of action that actually increased acetylcholine. So that kind of was an aha moment for me because I realized there's a connection between inflammation driving these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which can cause dysmotility and downregulate acetylcholine. But if you can replace the acetylcholine or you can somehow increase that, then your motility can be restored. So this is where I, I, I feel like I may have failed you eight years ago when your inflammation started. If we describe it as a nerve thing from your neck and you change the motility of your intestines, then it is quite possible that let's say a bacterial overgrowth, a SIBO, creates low-level inflammation. And so your cells that protect us go, that's not right. They start sending out what you're calling inflammatory cytokines, which just mean your immune system has a very complex process where it says, we need to recruit more cells. We need to do this. And they start sending out these different cytokines like TNF-alpha, mm -hmm. which that's tumor necrosis factor which is good if you're fighting a virus or a bacteria or you're doing things, but it actually, you found some great studies on how some of these cytokines right. have a direct effect on acetylcholine. Can you get into that? Right. Yeah, so, um, well, first let me explain another part of this that I found that's really interesting and that adds 
really some important information is that when I was looking at gastroparesis, I found a couple different studies that were describing how gastroparesis, and let me back up for a moment. So gastroparesis is basically when your stomach is not functioning mm -hmm. and it's a nerve problem. Mm -hmm. But most doctors identify gastroparesis as being a complication of diabetes. Because in diabetes, what happens is that you can have nerve damage. And so a lot of people who have diabetes and have nerve damage will develop gastroparesis. Right. And it's actually a barrier or a problem that a lot of gastroenterologists don't realize that you can have gastroparesis and not be diabetic. Because I'm not diabetic, but I have, a, I have it. So um, what I found is that in people who have idiopathic gastroparesis like mine where you know I don't really know why I developed it that in those people who also seem to also have dysautonomia because gastroparesis is considered a symptom of dysautonomia so it's really highly likely you're going to have other symptoms as well that in those people what they were finding is that they could trace it back to where those people had had either some type of virus like Epstein-Barr virus, Lyme, CMV, or maybe they had gastroenteritis and we don't really know what caused that. That could be, usually it's viral, but it could be bacteria too, that they had some sort of illness that preceded the development of the gastroparesis and the dysautonomia. And that when they ended up treating them, they would treat them with different kinds of medications to um, help reverse that immune process, things like IVIG and I think one study I saw, it was a very, very small study, I will admit, they used Interagam, which is a medical food, but it's IgG. But when they did something that helped um, the immune system recover, then that actually improved gastroparesis and dysautonomia. So that was kind of another aha moment that, okay, so when you have these things develop, it could be that there's some sort of pathogen that actually started this inflammation that the inflammation is just continuing, so it's driving the symptoms. And until you're able to control the inflammation and, and, and deal with it, then you're going to continue to have problems. But if you can deal with it, then you might resolve the symptoms. This is Well, this is so interesting because we talk about all these people uh, that certainly seek out functional, functional medicine doctors because they get so frustrated. It's the chronic Lyme person. And the reality is the chronic Lyme person has the fatigue They've got the gut issues and they get told, you know, no, you don't have the Lyme titers. You're not there. But what we're saying is that a virus can start the inflammatory cascade and doesn't quite get turned off. And now we've got an inflammatory cascade and an acetylcholine imbalance that can right. lead to this. Right. And I actually, so the next part was I started looking a little bit more specifically into the macrophage. So there's a lot of research right now about how the macrophage can drive a lot of intestinal inflammation and other problems in the intestine. So um, what I learned is that the macrophage actually comes from a type of white blood cell called the monocyte. And what happens is that when that monocyte enters the tissue or the organ and there's some kind of pathogen, it then becomes the macrophage. And it's a cell that its job is to try to help you attack or defend yourself against some sort of pathogen or inflammation or whatever might be going on. So what I found out is that one of the main cytokines that the macrophage releases is that TNF-alpha, mm -hmm. which can cause inflammation anywhere in the body, but specifically in the intestine, it's a really big problem. So Dr. Brown, I know you treat a lot of patients with IBD, 
And that's sort of like the model of the most extreme, severe type of inflammation you can find in the intestine. And one of the types of medications they use for patients like that are TNF-alpha inhibitors. So they're specifically targeting TNF-alpha to try to lower that cytokine because that's what's driving the inflammation. So then when I started reading about this, I also read some articles that were telling me that TNF-alpha specifically can cause dysautonomia. So I thought that was really interesting. And then when I started getting further into it, what I found was that TNF-alpha and acetylcholine have sort of this really interesting relationship where they oppose each other. So TNF-alpha will lower acetylcholine, but then acetylcholine also lowers TNF-alpha. So I was a little confused because it's sort of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. And if one is opposing the other, then why do we have a problem? But what I was learning is that when you have too much TNF-alpha, then it actually downregulates acetylcholine enough to where you don't really have acetylcholine. And then that, in turn, um, allows the TNF-alpha to, to remain and persist and continue to cause all these issues. And the really interesting part of this, it's kind of getting a little bit more into the geeky science, is that when I started studying how this works with the vagus nerve, so we talked about the vagus nerve and one of the most important functions is that it helps regulate the autonomic nervous system. I, I just want to say something really quick I mean, sure. because we, we've mentioned the vagus nerve, but I think um, just to clarify that vagus nerve is the biggest nerve that's going to be releasing acetylcholine, correct? correct? Okay. I just wanted to clarify. Well, it's the biggest, Not it's the biggest longest nerve in the body right. and it is, it does need acetylcholine. Correct. Right. Okay. Correct. So, ju so just to just to clarify that vagus nerve tenth cranial nerve comes out and actually innervates. It's the grand highway, right. so it innervates all the organs. When your vagal nerve doesn't have its nutrients, so it responds to acetylcholine. Am I correct in that? Where it's right. it needs acetylcholine to conduct itself. So, right, right. So it's the the nerve that connects that whole gut brain pathway. I've never so heard of that before. <laughs> That's all so, we're talking uh, about is gut brain all day long. <laughs> so what's interesting about the um okay, so what's interesting about the vagus nerve is that not only does it help to regulate the autonomic nervous system, but it also has a huge anti-inflammatory component. So there's something called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. So oh. I started yeah, so I started reading studies about this, and um, basically what the research is explaining is that in the model of sepsis, which is when your whole body is fighting an inflammation and infection, that typically the spleen is the one where the macrophages in the spleen are releasing all these cytokines, and that if you were able to stimulate the vagus nerve, that um, that acetylcholine will help lower that inflammation. So like they've done some studies with sepsis where they've tried to treat it with vagus nerve stimulation and it's helped to control the inflammation, reverse the sepsis and, and, and help the patient get better. In fact, there's actually studies right now on COVID that they're doing that is along the same lines. So then we also, I found out that um, it's not just the spleen and the vagus nerve that have this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, but you can have it between the intestines and the vagus nerve as well. So this part is where it gets a little geeky. I'm gonna to try to explain it, I'm gonna do my best. But basically, oh 
the macrophage releases the TNF alpha, which of course is going to can be communicated to the vagus nerve through that gut brain connection. So let me just clarify one thing: the macrophage, the way that it works is it is it phagocytosis. In other words, eats. It, it it eats and goes. Oh right. my gosh, we have an invader, and so it just goes help, 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 and it sends out this signal, which is TNF alpha. Right. Go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, help, help, help! I'm holding this guy. We've got a, a burglar, we need help. And that's right. the start of it, okay. Right, so this is where it gets a little geeky and I'm gonna admit I'm not a vagus nerve expert, but there's something called the preganglionic pathway. And that's basically when you have that signal coming from the gut to the vagus nerve. And that's when you can have that TNF alpha being communicated to the vagus nerve. But then you have the vagus nerve that is going to try to send a signal to say, hey, we want to release acetylcholine. And as it turns out, the macrophage specifically has a receptor and it has a really long name. It's the alpha-7 nicotinic ganglionic receptor or acetylcholine receptor, something like that. It's a very long name. But basically what it is is that it has a receptor that specifically um, it's sensitive to acetylcholine. So if acetylcholine is released, and if it is, so that postganglionic nerve is going to um, be really close to the organ and really close to the macrophage. If it's going to release acetylcholine and it lands on that receptor, then it's going to tell that macrophage, okay, stop with the TNF alpha. Everything's okay. Lower the inflammation. Be okay now. So and a so negative feedback loop where the vagus nerve tells the macrophage, chill out. We got this handled is basically right. what it's saying right through this anti-inflammatory acetylcholine receptor like inhibitor thing or whatever correct. correct okay so what's really interesting though that is if you don't if you have too much tnf alpha then you don't have enough acetylcholine to oppose that so oh. then you can continue having all this inflammation so chronic so, inflammation begets more inflammation yeah Right. So if you have too much TNF alpha, then then all of a sudden there's not enough acetylcholine to fight that. And then that's where the inflammation can persist. It's almost so then the, yeah, go ahead. So then the goal is that you want to somehow help the vagus nerve or help help support acetylcholine in order to where it will help decrease that inflammation and then it restores that parasympathetic function. So like, for example, this was a big aha moment for me. So TNF-alpha is a direct inhibitor of intestinal motility. So if you have too much TNF-alpha, you're basically lowering acetylcholine. But if you take prokinetics, which most prokinetics, the mechanism of action is gonna do something to increase acetylcholine, then that helps restore the motility. So that was kind of an aha moment for me, because if you think about SIBO experts, they're always preaching, well, even after you clear the SIBO, you need to stay on a prokinetic. And now to me, that I understand why that makes sense. How does that affect the migrating motor complex? Okay, that's something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> well, while motor we're at complex. it, can you talk to us about the meaning of life and yeah. what God is? <laughs> So the acetylcholine get us to space. Is all about motilin and all of that, but there is something called tributrin that will help that. And as a matter of fact, before I forget, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine in a discussion group. Her name's Rachel, and she and I have been 
going back and forth on a lot of this this year. So she's been helping me um, find ideas of what to research. Well, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, right on, Rachel. That's, that's actually really awesome. Well, that is, I mean, that it, I'm just impressed that honestly that you've pieced together so much about the dependence that we have specifically on this vagus nerve, the acetylcholine that essentially there, there are lots of yin and yang uh, opportunities biologically. We talked uh, recently about uh, uh, oxytocin and uh, vasopressin. I mean, and there's lots of different opportunities there where biologically we have things that go back and forth. So, yeah, this is what's interesting. Clearly, the body has its checks and balances everywhere. Yep. And the common theme that I'm hearing is, is that when you have too much chronic inflammation, acute inflammation, we've got these things built up to protect us from right. the acute invader. What happens is when we end up in this chronic inflammatory state, then things get out of whack. And what you're describing is this elegant model from... Well, in my world, from SIBO to dysautonomia through acetylcholine in the vagus nerve. Am I right. overgeneralizing right. that? No. And so there's one other part that I'll just throw in there, if you'll be okay with that. Go for it. I um, like that. So Tell me to vampires. I mean, you're going down some rabbit holes <laughs> that I'm loving, but if you say vampire, I will love it. Okay. So um, another thing that I learned this year that I had never heard of um, well, let me back up. So I had heard, I had heard a few years ago that there are some doctors that are now recognizing that when you have dysmotility, that this is an autoimmune issue. Like you can have autoimmune GI dysmotility. And personally, I never really thought about it or wanted to understand, I mean, not that I didn't want to understand it, but I didn't try to understand it because I didn't really see that that was going to apply to me. I kind of figured I knew why I developed dysmotility. But I learned about a condition this year, and it's called autoimmune autonomic gangliopathy. I'm going to have to refer to my notes. But it's, that's a really big word, and it's a big mouthful, and it actually, you can just abbreviate it by AAG. But it's an autoimmune condition, and what was really interesting to me is that it can actually be, it can actually happen after an event. It can happen after a virus, after an illness, after surgery. It's not something that you necessarily have to have your whole life. It actually can develop, it can be acquired. And typically um, there, so I'm gonna just read you the list of symptoms. The symptoms include dysautonomia as well as extra autonomic or outside of the autonomic nervous system manifestations. It can include diffuse GI dysmotility, which includes both gastroparesis and colonic inertia, orthostatic hypotension, POTS, dry mouth, dry eyes, dry skin, urinary retention, or some type of difficulty voiding, difficulty regulating your temperature. And you can also have CNS symptoms, which are those of like the brain symptoms, like things like anxiety, depression, cognitive difficulties, which we call brain fog sometimes. And it's also usually can coexist with other autoimmune conditions, including fibromyalgia and Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid autoimmune oh, yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because I hit on a lot of those. And so there are actually antibodies that you can test for. It's a blood test and it was initially developed by the Mayo Clinic, but you can now get it through other labs and they will test for the antibodies. But the interesting part is that only about 50% of the people who they consider to have this will actually test positive for the antibodies. 
So when they, when you have this condition, the way they treat it is things like IVIG, steroids, there are some immunosuppressants, they do plasma exchange, it's kind of some pretty heavy duty stuff, but it's all to target the immune system. And the reason the antibodies matter is because even if you don't test positive, if you're considered seronegative and you don't have the antibodies, you can still, they show that you can still have improvement if you do the same treatment. So just because it's not detected doesn't mean they may not have that problem. Correct. So what's really interesting, and this is something that my friend Rachel had taught me about, is that her theory is that maybe because she's, she's um, aware that there have been cases where people will test positive for the antibodies and then later they'll test negative. Mm-hmm. And so it's very inconsistent. And so her theory is maybe the antibodies are detected only when you're at your worst or when you're having some sort of like uh, major flare up. I don't know. We're just speculating. We're just wondering. But that's th- a super interesting theory because yeah. let's liken that to uh, celiac, celiac antibodies, yeah. gliadin, right. endomycel, TTG mm-hmm. antibodies. When you're eating a lot, your antibodies go way up. When you mm-hmm. back off, your antibodies go way down. So if you're having a lot of ganglionic acetylcholine receptor antibodies, which are detected in the blood for whatever reason, due to inflammation, due to the trigger, I mean, what we're, this onion that I think you're starting to peel back, Angie, and you're doing an amazing job of explaining it. This is, this is so high level that as we're peeling this back, we may end up getting to a core where there could be a trigger that we could avoid so Mm. that this doesn't happen. And thank you for mentioning that because I forgot to mention that the antibody that they're testing for is an antibody to the acetylcholine receptor, the ganglionic acetylcholine receptor. Coming back to your original thought that it all comes down to acetylcholine affecting the vagus nerve, the inner balance between TNF-alpha and acetylcholine, and now we're talking about people developing antibodies Mm -hmm. to prevent the acetylcholine that's floating around to even attaching to that receptor. Right. And it actually made sense to me because when you go back, so when I was reading about AAG, so, you know, basically you've got somebody with GI dysmotility and all these dysautonomia and then all the other things that we know sometimes go along with it. And they're treating it by things like IVIG or plasma or, you know, some sort of immunosuppressants. It kind of went along and was consistent with the studies I found on gastroparesis, where they're saying that this is triggered after a viral or possibly bacterial um, illness and that it triggers the gastroparesis and the dysautonomia. But the way they treated that was also with IVIG and things like interrogam, anything that was going to help reverse that immune response. So like if you're getting to where you're actually thinking, okay, this sounds like something I could have, then to me, there's two ways to think about it. You can actually support the acetylcholine by doing some things like prokinetics and there's certain supplements. Right, hold that thought. I have to go to the restroom really quick. We're going to talk about treatment. You guys are going to recap that aspect and make it palatable. Yeah. And I'll just be right back. We're going to recap this aspect to make it palatable. So. <laughs> okay. How do we, what kind of salt and sugar do we put on this thing to make this more palatable that he, he leaves and laughs at me as he. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> No, no joke though, Angie, is, uh, as Ken was pointing out, this amount of research and really piecing and building, he says peeling this onion back, but we had to put this onion together. I mean, there's, 
linking all of these things together is, is I, I find very, very interesting and actually quite, I don't know, built on common sense. The, the vagus nerve is, is um, I think vagus is V-A-G-U-S and is Latin for wandering. It's not, it's not V-E-G-A-S. It, it basically means it's everywhere. And right. Our parasympathetic nervous system is essentially run by that 10th cranial nerve to basically keep everything in check for us. So you piecing this together and finding all of the common pathways back to how it relates to your situation. And yeah, it is a gut paralysis issue, but it seems like that we've simply just lost the, the autonomic function of one very delicate yet incredibly important nerve, which services everything throughout the body. And you've right. been able to not show us that, yeah, these are symptoms of something that's failed, but this is what's happening. And this is how we can actually overcome it because no one's ever talked about how mm -hmm. do we build back kind of this wall that's fallen down. Lots of times, I think people just are just kind of shoved to the side because you don't always have somebody in your corner to, to help out and work through that problem with you. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. So, so uh, palatable was the wrong word. Did you guys choose salt, lorries? What'd you do? I, it tasted great. Yeah. While you were gone, the conversation. Was great. I can't talk about parasympathetic this long without my bladder going. I'm parasympathetic. <laughs> I gotta go. Like, okay. So the really cool part is you put a lot of thought into potentially helping this process. What are your thoughts on this? And you're not being held to it because this is all in. There's yeah. not enough research out there, which is probably something that we got to figure out as a team what to do. So what are some different things that you have found to try and help increase the acetylcholine? So I think, first of all, prokinetics. And I know there's a lot of functional practitioners that want to hear about what kinds of things to try, but all of the prescription prokinetics actually work by increasing acetylcholine with the exception, I think, of erythromycin, which is the MMC. But I think that's important because that'll help promote the motility. And now that I understand kind of why acetylcholine is important for motility and then how it can be impacted by things like inflammation, then that makes me understand even more that those prokinetics are important. Um, I actually also found a supplement this year called Hooperzine. So I've been taking that and that's um, a, and a cholinesterase inhibitor. So it basically prevents the enzyme that's going to break down acetylcholine, which also helps support having those levels. Um, something like vitamin B5, I think that supports, I think some of there's some other ones, B1 also might, I think they're in the pathway of synthesis. Um, serotonin, I actually read, um, or actually 5-HTP rather. Which that's the building block to build serotonin, right? is 5-HT. I'm sorry. That's the, the building block that our bodies use or can use uh, to, uh, to build more serotonin, correct? Or kind of like a precursor. Right. So I'm losing my notes, but I do remember. So serotonin um, or 5-HTP helps to build serotonin. And then, so your 5-HT4 receptors, we haven't talked about that, but 5-HT4 receptors are in the gut and that's the target for the prokinetics. Mm -hmm. But 5-HTP will also target the, 
the, those receptors. And those receptors, once they're activated, that helps promote acetylcholine as well. So it's a long-winded way to say that 5-HTP can help. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting is that's all to try to help promote acetylcholine, but maybe there needs to be some more work on getting that inflammation down to begin with. So maybe, you know, I don't know, something like Interagam or there's some over-the-counter versions that I think are similar, um, SBI and things like that. Maybe yeah, so we like talk, that, yeah, we know. talk a little bit greater on that. So there's what you're talking about is taking in colostrum, IgG, things like that, that we, um, my experience using some of those things in gut health has not been very successful in the sense that I think it's, you need to hit it from a multi- angle approach and decreasing the inflammatory aspect, your situation is a little bit different in that you, I think you had a neurologic event, which led to this whole cascade, but we have so many people that eat a very pro-inflammatory diet. Hmm. And if you're listening to this and you're waiting in line in a fast food restaurant in a drive through or something, please understand that when you have that high fructose corn syrup yeah. or you have those polyunsaturated fatty acids like corn oil and soybean oil, right. that is a pro-inflammatory thing that could potentially lead to um, some intestinal inflammation, which then leads to a macrophage getting turned on, which then leads to TNF-alpha being spread around, which then leads to acetylcholine dropping. And oh, wow, Angie just figured out how intestinal inflammation can lead to POTS dysautonomia, which is something I treat so many patients with this. And I share patients with a, a well-known doctor here in town, Dr. Suleiman, who treats POTS, we share these patients. I'm like, why am I sharing patients with this cardiologist? I think you just figured it out. I think you did an incredible job of walking from A to K. And I think we can go from K to Z. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have all the answers, but it has been very eye opening. It's incredible. But it just simply makes sense. We've been talking, and Angie, you've helped us with, with the research on some of the other shows we've pieced together, but high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, um, safflor, uh, safflower oil, all of those different ingredients, unfortunately, they get subsidized, which means that they are in everything. We, we've seen these numbers of people who've, who've dealt with just various GI issues. And unfortunately for Angie, hers is definitely one of the more extreme circumstances, but it just comes down to where is all of this new inflammation coming from? Why is the American Western diet such a culprit? And it's not just because people just want to eat these substances inherently could just be bad and perpetuating this inflammation that you're trying to run from. And if you can't recognize, just like you said, Angie, we need to find out what's causing the inflammation because we can keep trying to patch it up, but if the flood keeps coming in, it's, it's going right. to hard to do I actually out. started looking at um, TNF-alpha. One thing, I'm not an expert, but I know that there's a lot of research about toxins in our environment and how they can impact you. So like just something simple like BPA, I found an article oh. that says that can increase TNF-alpha. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I drink water bottles all day long, <laughs> but you know, maybe that's something I should rethink. I don't know. Well, this is going to be a, a moving target and there's a couple things I want to make sure that we get out there. First of all, thank you so much for oh, coming no on the show. 
and talking about this. I believe that this is just a high level introduction to a lot of things that I'm trying to wrap my brain around. And I can only imagine that it's, um, it's a lot of information for people to try and grasp what's going on. But for those people who are struggling, this is a huge, huge opportunity to at least start heading down a different path, which means and that path I'm talking about is many of my own colleagues, gastroenterologists, I get second opinions all the time where they go to a doctor and they say, I don't believe in SIBO. Here's an antidepressant. Now we're going to go one step further. We're going to go, I believe that if we don't fix your SIBO, your intestinal inflammation, your diet, then you can end up in this situation. And right now I've got so many people with POTS and MALS and, you know, and we didn't even touch on the Ehlers-Danlos epigenetic phenomenon, all that. That is next podcast. So you have a week. To learn about all <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I will. I, I will just want... quickly add. I will just quickly add. I know mast cell is something that is also um, really common with all of these symptoms. So I didn't really have an opportunity to. I haven't gone deep into that, but it was interesting to me. What I did learn is that. So typically, when you think of mast cell, you think the mast cells releasing histamine. Right. Mast cells actually also release a high amount of TNF alpha. And then the macrophage, you know, we're talking about how it releases TNF alpha. It mm -hmm. actually also releases a high amount of histamine. Histamine. So yeah. it kind of is like adding fuel to the fire. I mean, it's all, it's not just one cell and one, one inflammatory cytokine. It's kind of like that whole generalized in, immune response. So I want to encourage anybody who's listening to this, that even if it didn't quite fall into your wheelhouse about what you have, but if you have no anybody who has bloating or digestive issues or autoimmune issues or anything related to POTS, dysautonomia or SIBO, share it with them because this is a community that Angie, you're involved in multiple um, support groups and you're crushing it right now and i feel like uh your life struggles are going to make a difference in hundreds of thousands of lives and i appreciate you not giving up i appreciate you saying i'm going to learn more about this even though i got a bucket next to me for the last seven <laughs> years that i vomit in when i don't time things right because these nerves don't work i think that's number one very brave of you really cool and then you've become, you kept saying, I'm not an expert. You sound like a dang expert to me. I would definitely defer to you. <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Angie, for coming on. It's just so much information, but it's, it's all so relative, can be used immediately by, by many. And something else that, that crossed my mind whenever you were talking about what do you do to avoid inflammation, we, four decades ago, we talked about the dangers of smoking, right? We, we talked about you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't inhale because it's going to cause these elasticity issues with lungs. And people could, you know, one-to-one, -one, everyone can admit that smoking is bad. Well, not understanding the dangers of the things that are coming into our food and causing the types of long-term inflammation, that's, that's the new problems of like smoking. Because now what Angie's doing is showing us that you have to get the triggers that are causing your chronic inflammation under control. Or just like you said, Ken, someone who has IBS or SIBO, if you don't address it and we don't find out what it is while we're trying to get your acetylcholine back into balance and you continue to have these, uh, these inflammatory episodes, 
you may find yourself with a much, much more severe situation. Yeah, I guess that's the thing I want everybody to take away here is that just because a doctor pats you on the head and says you'll be fine, we're now showing that if you leave the chronic inflammation going, no, not only does it lead to possibly the typical things that we talk about chronic inflammation, which is cancer and autoimmune diseases, but this kind of stuff, which is life altering, debilitating, shut you down, make you depressed, make you isolated. And it takes uh, quite honestly a hero like you to just step out of that and go, no, I'm going to talk about it. Definitely. We're going to throw it out there. So thank you very much, Angie. Thank you all for taking the time to dedicate to talk about this. This is, I feel like, I'm very passionate about motility disorders. And one of the reasons I am is because when you talk about digestive health, there's a lot of attention about IBS or IBD, but not many, many people talk about motility disorders. They don't really know what it is. And when you're a patient, it's very isolating. And so I love any time that we can do anything to promote awareness. So your notes for the podcast would make <laughs> an incredible publication. Yeah, they really just would. saying. I think that uh, we're going to have some people. If if you want Angie to publish this so that you can digest it in a <laughs> journal and make it formal, so you can walk into your doctor's office and slap it down and be like, "Look, that's me." I'm yeah, telling this you. is like months of research, just doing it and then coming back and then doing it again and then kind of revisiting it all. It takes a long time. Isn't that interesting? Because the articles that you send me, we'll look at stuff and I'll look at 50 pages of references and you're like, this person put their life into it. Right. And that's what it takes when somebody gets passionate enough like this, that you just go, no, I'm going to put this out there. And the first step is just talking about it a little bit superficially like this. Um, we didn't even nearly get into the detail that you have in here, which is awesome. There's like this five is, podcasts in these. There's notes. like five podcasts here. Yeah. And so hopefully a, you know, um, I'm going to hopefully Chris Cresser will listen to this and he'll have you on and then you can go into more detail with him. His audience is a little bit different and then you just keep working your way. And then next thing we know, we see Angie on good morning America discussing the, <laughs> The components I don't think the, so. Well, it may, who knows? Because, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who could just simply be helped by this. And not only that, I think there's a lot of researchers who will probably see this and say, that's the connection that we need to make. And ultimately, sure. this whole show isn't just about learning and sharing experiences. It's about helping people. And that's, I mean, we start, yeah, we start moving away from, oh, um, let's use osmotic laxatives to, oh, let me check to see if you have AAG. If you do, now I know that we need to increase your acetylcholine. And if we do that, we need to at first make sure that you do not have a chronic inflammatory state and do not have increased levels of TNF alpha. That's right. Then once we do that, then I can start giving you some promotility agents and things like that, because we're going to try and correct the background buzz the background noise that's going on and as somebody who i'm into this and i didn't know any of this so i know my colleagues don't there's probably a few people at the mayo that work in the motility clinic and you know some people at uh, northwestern um and a few people that that i've i've read some stuff but they aren't going into this kind of thing like no. i think you 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 have a moral obligation to put this out there so that other researchers can then run with it and say didn't see it from that angle. Yeah. Everybody gets so myopic in medicine. I mean, they just sit there and just, you're like, this is what I'm looking at. And you forget that it's more than just the thing they're looking at. And I'm guilty of that 100%. Having 
um, doubt in yourself and being open to other ideas and angles is the key to medicine. It's the mm -hmm. key to growth, human growth, not just in medicine, but in love and relationships and everything. Submit your questions to Dr. Kenneth Brown about uh, love and life. And, <laughs> and I will forward them immediately to <laughs> Angie Cook. <laughs> well, Angie, thank you so much. I think that's going to do it for episode number 45. And this is definitely not our only show with you because I have a feeling it won't be that much longer until we're going to build out another podcast out of, out of just another just great angle of some yeah, of the information I'm, you've got. I'm hoping that once we start sharing this with some of our audiences that they'll come up and go, okay, yeah, let's talk about, okay, so now I'm like that. Now do a whole show on how to fix the problem. Definitely. So, but I think that you telling your story is very, very genuine. It validates where you come from. It gives hope to other people. And I want to thank you for being so candid about it. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks, Angie. All right. What episode was this, Eric? 45. 45. Please like and share. Gut Check Project fans, we appreciate you joining us today. Special thanks to Angie Cook, registered nurse and uh, master's in nutrition for joining us today and sharing her, her just incredible journey, her story, and uh, most of all, her research and her willingness to, uh, to look out for others. So absolutely so please email us and tell us um to make sure that angie uh publishes this <laughs> see you next time bye everybody bye, bye.